Welcome to the ninth episode of the Customer Support Podcast, and this is your host Sandeep Jain. In this podcast, we invite thought leaders from customer support function, from both B two B and B two C companies, so that you can learn about challenges, opportunities, and best practices around setting up a world class support organization. Today's podcast is kind of unique because our guest has a combination of both B two B and B two C experience. His name is Rick. John Vecchio. Rick has a unique combination of engineering, product management, and customer support. And as I said earlier, that he has done both B2B and B2C customer support. His B2C experience was at Symantec, where actually he did B2B as well. He was a vice president of consumer support and services. And most recently, Rick joined Okta, where he's now the vice president of customer support. If you don't know, Okta is actually a, a public company based out of San Francisco that does identity and access management. Their market cap is around $12 billion and latest revenue is around $375 million. With that, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Rick. Thank you, Sandy. It's great to be here. Thank you for your time, Rick. So let's get into this. I see that you started your career in engineering, you transitioned into product management and then into support. Why support? Well, it's, so it's an interesting journey, I and mean, it is kind of different than, than a lot of people. I, I actually wasn't even in software engineering when I began my career. I was uh, in aerospace engineering. I built rockets, so I get to tell everyone I was a rocket scientist. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, building rockets is expensive, and so we had to learn how to model them, and that's how I learned to, to write code so I can simulate, you know, rocket propulsion enterprises for some of our clients when I was, you know, fresh out of school. So as you start developing the code and um, you learn how important it is to test the code. And so I got more focused on better ways of, of testing things, making the solutions more robust. And, and I felt that I had a unique position because as a software developer, I kind of know how developers think and, and, how they, and how they focus on things. And therefore, there's a lot of times, you know, developers with the best intentions, they cut corners. They, fi- they figure that A and B will automatically equal a C and don't check it. Right. And so having that sort of mentality going into a testing protocol made it a lot easier for us to kind of focus really on finding defects as opposed to a lot of traditional testing, which is more about running the scripts and reporting back what you have. Uh, so it was, I thought it was very interesting because, you know, and then why did I go from testing the software into, into support? Ultimately, things exist in this world to help people. You know, everything that's been invented today was driven from necessity somewhere. Some person needed this to make their life easier or to, or to feed their family or to make sure the water was clean. And so I, I think where I resonated to is that I enjoy helping people. And if, if I'm in a position where I can explain to people how things are supposed to work or help troubleshoot why something isn't working, that kind of, you know, rem- gives you people the purpose behind why we make these things to begin with. So that's why my career has kind of moved away from just building stuff to actually making sure that the things that we build are meeting the expectations of the people that drove the innovation to create them in the first thing. So that's kind of a lot of, of why I did the switch. And of course, along the way, you know, I, I picked up some business acumen. I went back to, to business school and got an MBA. I learned more about finance and accounting and numerical analysis and a lot of those other tools <laughs> that ultimately went toward you know using data to figure out how can you help people when things are not meeting their expectations 
fascinating. Uh, I like your story, Rick. And and by the way, you, you did mention that you went you went to the business school, and there's like two schools of thought there. <laughs> do you think it's it is required, or do you think it's more on the well? It just helps you understand how an organization functions. Well, what would your recommendation be? Well, I think it's, uh, to answer your question, I think it's very personal. In in my case, you know, I, I'd done a lot in engineering and I sat around a lot of people who I thought were really sharp in what they did in, in marketing or in sales or in accounting. And I was always curious about, well, why can't I do that too? And And while I could definitely spend some time researching it, the one thing I got out of business school that I couldn't have gotten on my own is building that network of people that are actually in those functions and telling you not just what's in the book, but how it really works in real life. And so that was the one thing, if people can afford it, because unfortunately it's not really cheap, but <laughs> it, it, it does give you great access to a network that you may use for years on down the line and get you a, a quick access to people that are in the shoes that maybe you're interested in and maybe you're no longer interested in once you had a chat with them. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. But yeah, for me, I went back to, to school because I wanted to put a few more tools in my toolbox. I wanted to know more about how to do analysis. I wanted to understand more about marketing. I wanted to understand what are the drivers you know, to, to the emotions of people. And can I be in a better position with that knowledge to, to again, help people as, as they go through using the things we build. Makes sense. Thanks for sharing this, Rick. Uh, I had a similar story. So I, I also did an MBA and, and my reason was, and it's expensive as you're saying, it's really expensive. I wish it was not. And I feel that everybody you know, who works in a corporate life should do an MBA of some sorts because you have an appreciation of how a business is run. You know, I was in engineering and I had no idea. You know, I knew what marketing sales is, but I, had, I don't think I really appreciated what that role entails. And uh, manufacturing, you know, how these separate units work together. Why do you need these layers of management sometimes? Why do you not need the layers of management? So it, it's just a organizational hygiene that you learn in MBA and of course, a lot of business tools. So um, it, it provides a good framework too, because I mean, I think we all know the minute you leave school, things don't stop changing. And, and so if building that framework on how you can stay on top of the latest trends and latest technologies is important. And, and I got a lot of that discipline through the, through the business school. Absolutely. And uh, one thing also unique we talked about earlier was uh, you have both a B2C and B2B experience. Now, with relates, as it relates to customer support, can you give a sense of, well, are these oil and water or is, this, is there some intersection? Can somebody who is doing a B2C support transition into doing B2B support or vice versa? So it's a, it's a great question. So in my experience, what I found in, when it came to like B2C is that types of issues you deal with are not as much about your product or, or your service. They tend to be more about billing or how do I buy your product or how do I buy another version of your product or how can I give it to my wife as well? It's, it's how do I take something out of my, my cart? And, and, or in the case of, you know, semantic, it was my machine slow. So do I have a virus? And, and so a lot of cases in, in the B2C space that, that I experience are more about the, the transaction with your company and ensuring that that's as smooth as possible. That's not to say we didn't have technical challenges and, and they came up from time to time. 
but the lion's share of, of cases that we managed in, in the B2C space were more about the transaction between our company and the end user, uh, the consumer, and less so in the, in the, B2, in the B2B space. And, and the reason B2B is a little bit different is because a lot of those functions on the transaction are handled by other groups already. So you have an enablement function, you have a sales function, you have a procurement function. Um, all that stuff is handled between other parts of your company and other parts of the business you're doing business with. Whereas our focus in, in B2B support is really more so about the product. You know, why is the product not meeting the customer's expectations? What can, is there, you know, a third party at play that we need an interaction we weren't aware of? Is it a configuration issue? A lot of those things kind of really require more of a technical skill set and, and less of a transactional skill set. And so, you know, it's definitely a, a different need. You're dealing with people that are far more technical on the other side of the phone or chat or whatever your channel preferences are. And, and for that reason, I think, you know, you need to be able to, to speak as an expert and as a trusted advisor on that technology, which requires a much more uh, engineering focus than, than traditional B2C support. Got it. But for the enterprise B2C support, does it make even financial sense to have a support? And the reason I ask this question is, you know, the ACV value or the annual contract value that a single individual, the C, uh, that is going to bring to the B is going to be probably in several hundred dollars or maybe a couple of thousand dollars. Now, when, when the person picks up the phone, assuming the, the support is happening over the phone, it costs companies to do the support. And if there is like one of my previous companies where I worked, if a person picked up the phone first time to call the company, you know, all our margins would be wiped off. And so this is not about making money or anything. It's like, we will be in losses. So, does it make sense to have enterprise B2C support? Yeah, I, I think, well, first of all, I think support is a way of showing that you're, you're willing to put your, your, your money where your mouth is, that you're yeah. proud of the products and services you have, and that you, know, you want to ensure that customers are successful and know that life isn't perfect, things happen. And so while, yeah, there is a, a cost element to it, particularly in the consumer space where you're talking about where the, where the switching costs are tremendously low to the to the large enterprise space where the, the complexity and the integration make the switching a much harder thing for people to manage but if you don't in my opinion if you aren't there to manage your consumers they're going to start challenge you know wondering you're just trying to take my money do you want to make sure this isn't working correctly i mean i think we've all had experience with companies that had really bad support right. even if the product wasn't that expensive and and they remember that and you know so i think that a lot of people you know maybe don't account for the fact of the role that support has in customer retention I and mean, so well you say yeah it cost me ten dollars you know or or a hundred dollars to solve this customer's issue today what you're not seeing is that that customer becomes loyal over time and starts referring you to other you know your, your company to others and that, that doesn't necessarily, you know, directly show up. And so Fair. it is about word of mouth. It is about, you know, making sure we're treating our customers so they can be successful in our solutions. That's why we built them, to help them through the problem that they couldn't do. Got it. And Rick, with respect to Okta, where you're right now, could you give us a sense of how your organization is structured and who your customers are? This is so that our audience understands what kind of support uh, requirements that you are required to support, I guess. Sure, sure. So Okta, um, we support 
various customer segments from small businesses to mid-market to commercial, public sector, a large enterprise. I mean, in, along the, in those segments, we support multiple verticals from fintech to pharmaceuticals to manufacturing to fin financial banks. And, and so we have a, a very robust set of customers that all have one thing in common at Octane, and that is they need to be able to manage identity and they need to be able to manage their their workforce in a way that is scalable. Um, they'd go to Okta so that they can quickly grow or expand or, or adjust their strategy by tying in technologies that are on the cloud. And they look to Okta to kind of make sure that we're the ones that are ensuring that the right person is getting access to those technologies and that your, your internal data isn't compromised in the, in the course of doing so. The challenge with that, of course, is we're dealing with anywhere from mom and pop shops to <laughs> fortune 50 companies and their expectations on response times can be very different we do it through multiple layers we have multiple tiers depending on you know, what level of uh, support you've you've purchased or have taken with your contract but ultimately we have a tier one that tries to assess some of the easy solutions quick, quick knowledge out there and they hand those off to tier two which handle the bulk of the issues that go into support and occasionally things get really complicated. And so we, we have some advanced engineers in our tier three organization. In addition to all those tiers, we have kind of an oversight group called Escalations. And, and we call it Escalations not because, you know, the, the vice president's house is on fire. It's really more of, <laughs> we wanna make sure that we're looking at things holistically. And we want people that have kind of mastered the executive presence needed to kind of build confidence with companies. And so those are the kind of ways we do it. And of course, we have some advanced support services. So some may go give you access directly to tier two. Mm -hmm. And we've even introduced, you know, what we call mission critical support engineers, which is, is sort of a dedicated engineer who's kind of has a holistic understanding of your company and, and is tasked to bring whatever resources Okta has to bear in the event, you know, things don't go right. Understood. Um, so it's, it's an interesting combination, but again, the challenge we're having is, yeah, we're all over the place in terms of market segments, and we're, we are all over the place in terms of the verticals we support, which makes it a huge you know, learning challenge to stay on top of all of that. I can imagine that. And could you give us a sense of how many like, percentage of tickets you close in that level one, two, and three, and how many people roughly you might have in these three tiers? Yeah, we, it's about 70% of our, our cases are closed by the tier two organization and about 14%, 14, 15% by tier one. The remaining ones are the really difficult ones that take some more time. And then the escalations team is kind of there more on an account level rather than a case level to kind of make sure things are moving through the system at the right pace. Got it. And could you give us a sense of what are the incoming channels and percentage of issues coming through each? Right? So it's like web, phone, email, social media. Sure, yeah. Right now, um, most of our customers, they either contact us through a phone number, and that could be either the general support phone number or the dedicated one if you've paid for that level of service. Uh, although about half of our cases are, are self-service. We have a, you go to our web page and say, you know, I need to open a case, and it will prompt you with some questions on how to identify your case, and, and then that gets, you know, automatically triaged and assigned out to an engineer that will get in touch with you accordingly. So I'd say that our primary contact channels are, and emails too, I shouldn't forget that. Those are the three main ways people get in touch with support to kind of create cases and they have continual correspondence. And, you know, we're looking at expansion. Are there other channels that make sense? 
Are there other channels that can get solutions without necessarily having to create cases? We're examining, you know, chat as, as a, and, and see whether that makes sense at the large enterprise. And at the same time, we're introducing a social media concern because I think a lot of times we can solve things that are reported on Twitter or on Facebook or, well, Instagram or whatever your personal preferences in terms of communicating in, in social media and, and solve one solution with, with, a, with an audience of many. So those are areas of, of, that we're investing more in, in the Octa support organization. And I think things that will allow Octa to differentiate itself in the competition. Got it. And, and, and a few follow-ups here. So in terms of the majority of the cases, are they coming from the web or over the phone? Uh, majority of our cases are coming either from our self-service portal or from, via email. I see. So the phone is probably the third or the second. Right? Yeah. And the, the third, it's like anything else. You know, the, the urgency drives the preferred channel. And I think as Okta and any customer service team knows, you need to have different options because preferences are very situational. Something's on fire. They want to call and tell you it's on fire. They don't want to send you an email because that implies it's not as urgent. So we need to have those different channels available to us. And, and be flexible on, on understanding that. And and what do you say about this? Like some of my previous guests have said, email is a very difficult channel to support because people just say something is not working and the context is missing. It takes a huge time to solve the, the problem. That's your experience as well? Yeah, it, it, email is an interesting channel in that it's <laughs> great for reporting you have an issue. I'm not convinced it's a great way of resolving an issue because to your point, there is a lot of back and forth that happens. Right. And it's very asynchronous. And to be honest, people will go to Google. They'll go to Bing. They'll search. You know, they're not going to wait for that email. If, if something's not working, they're going to keep looking. And, and so, you know, a lot of times by the time you've made contact back and forth, they may have solved their problem already. Right. And you've made in that whole period of time, you've made an investment just trying to make contact with them. And so it, it's, an, it's a good way to kind of get things in and create sort of a paper trail so that we know cases are created and we know that follow-ups are being scheduled, but it is hard to kind of troubleshoot, especially on very complex technologies. People are just like, it's, it's not working. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you fix that? You know, and you really need to get on the phone and, and maybe even do a screen share and kind of see, show me what you're seeing. Fair. Uh, you know, and, and on top of that, you know, at Octa, we have a lot of telemetry that we refer to as well. So if we see unusual patterns, arrival patterns of authentications, we may discuss that with customers, but uh, in general, I think it, it, email tends to be the way to kind of create cases more than actually resolve issues. Got it. And Rick, you also talked about social media, and it's kind of unique what you said, because none of my previous guests have talked about actively looking into social media as, as a channel. So have you seen your customers using social media and you're trying to, to see how you can address it, or is this some, something more aspirational? Well, so one of the things that's unique in Octa, so many of our customers have their own customers we're serving. So I think of like schools, you know, they're a customer of Octa, but they're, they're also supporting, you know, 10,000 students that, that leverage Octa's interface to get access to their tests or their homework or whatever it might be. So a lot of times it's the users that will be reporting on problems and which are, you know, can be indicative of a symptom we need to keep an eye on. So we start, we start monitoring that on social media, see references to Okta, and try to bring those people back into the conversation and discuss with them. You know, I think there's, there's cases where, where social media allows us to get the message out too. It's not just a reactive 
method of support, but it's a proactive right. where we can communicate, hey, here's a com here's a best practice on how you should, you know, integrate with your, your Office 365. Or there was a great exchange that happened on Twitter the other day where someone was asking, how do I do my Okta authentication when I'm on an airplane at 35,000 feet waiting for an SMS confirmation? And so knowing that we're, we see that kind of query kind of goes out in general on Twitter, you know, people will get frustrated and decide to tell the world they're frustrated. <laughs> and we want a team that's there to catch that and basically say, hey, did you know we do this? And did you know you could change the setting? And you know we could solve your problem. And now we know that everyone that follows that individual is getting that message too. So in many ways, we're supporting one customer, but we're supporting all their followers as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's an obvious, but uh, somewhat non-obvious as well, unless you think about it. <laughs> Makes sense. And actually, that's a good segue to my next question, which is around the technologies that you use and support today. And by that, what I mean is, do you use a contact center solution, case management, search? Well, is there a customer portal, knowledge management, and other stuff? Yeah, we have a lot of different things here. Um, some of them come from vendors. Some of them come from kind of homegrown solutions. Um, our support stack is kind of a hybrid. So we don't have like a single unified solution from a from a large you know, contact center provider. But we do have things that handle our, our voice over IP. We handle case management. If, if you look into the history of Octa, you'll see there's a lot of Salesforce blood in the organization. So I'll give you a good idea who we use as a case management provider. Search is an interesting channel because we have a lot of information. And so we've been working on improving that and investing in some new search technologies that I can't go into yet, but hopefully we'll be in a position to turn on something a little bit more in the future. But we think that'll make a huge difference because it's not just looking for keywords, but it's looking for that natural language association. Knowledge management, you know, we have a, a homegrown system on that that we're evaluating and seeing what we can do to improve on it. I um, mean, as far as like a support app, um, we, we don't have those per se, although you can access support from your mobile phone. There's a mobile version of the Okta Help Center. It'll help give you access to um, our, our contact information. But yeah, we don't do anything you know, directly on, on mobile in terms of a, a channel for customers. You know, our, a lot of our, uh, we're in the, in the fledgling stages of our social media evolution. And so we are looking at technologies that allow us to rapidly turn those engagements into cases for tracking purposes. Um, but a lot of that stuff is, uh, you know, we're in a transformational period at Octa Support as we see this hyper growth in our business. And so there's a lot of exciting things going on, but there's so many balls in the air right now. <laughs> it's kind of hard to like, you know, anything I tell you now will probably be changed in six months because, you know, our needs are, are rapidly changing and we got to be prepared for that. So how do you manage with this hybrid tool stack? How do you manage passing information from one Tool A to tool B to tool C. Oh, they're internally at Octa. We've got a business operations team and our IT team that work with these our partners to help on integration. Some of them have their own managed services or should I say professional services that help us with that. So a lot of it has been built together through a combination of APIs and and understanding of use cases. Uh, and, and we we just prioritize like like any other business would in terms of what we need to do. Um, so it's exciting. And, you know, one of the, the things that I think is unique about my organization is, you know, Octus supports products that are actually APIs. And so we allow people that can build their own authentication systems using our APIs. And for that reason, we have an actual developer support team. And these are people that know how to write code and know how to help people 
integrate those APIs, um, and they like to write code. I want to reiterate that because that may be a useful thing to have when we have to continue to evolve our support tools over time. That's interesting. I, actually, you mentioned a great point there about the, your product being APIs. So are you guys active on, uh, or are your users active on Stack Exchange, for example, from a support perspective? Um, yeah, we, so we have dev support Slack channels that we manage. There's a dev support at Okta. There's a, well, it's developer at Okta.com website where people that have challenges with their APIs report mm -hmm. out on, on what's going on that, and, and that members of my team and others at Okta monitor and help answer those questions. We have community forums as well, which uh, while it's not restricted to, to anything in general, but a lot of API questions may show up on the, on the uh, community forums as well. So we, we try to get our support people to kind of see the questions that are out there as, as, as opposed to just waiting for it to come inbound. Um, and, and it's a good way of kind of keeping in tune as to, you know, what in our portfolio is resonating the best with customers and make sure that we're appropriately uh, trained and ready for those questions should they hit our, our contact center lines. Fair. I always imagine you know, from a support perspective, I've never been in that role, but you know, you're looking at your emails, you're looking at your case management, you're looking at communities, you're looking at the Slack channel, there's a stack exchange there. Like, there's so many dashboards just to be looking at, forget like making sense of what the information is coming out of that. Is this, is that a big incoming noise factor here or is it just a, well, this is how it is, it is done? Well, it, there's a lot of data coming in. That's for sure. Um, you know, B2B is a little, in some ways, is easier because I'm dealing with, you know, tens of thousands of, of pieces of information, you know, every month as opposed to uh, hundreds of thousands that you see in the B2C space. But it, it's, it's ironic for a business that is so much into that personal touch that a lot of it's driven by the statistics. And, and so there's a lot of data out there. And I think, you know, any good contact center leader should really be investing in that data mining and being able to pull insights out of that information. And, and the, the reason you want to do that is because the best way to make a case go away is to push it upstream so that there's no reason for the case to exist in the first place. As a matter of fact, I would say to many people that if you're the ultimate success as a support manager is to build a team that is no longer needed. <laughs> because, because you've given those insights back into the business to build the right solutions and add the right troubleshooting tools and, and the, you know, and, and count for all these use cases that maybe you never planned for. Now, again, it's kind of an aspirational goal, right? But the, yeah, the further upstream we can resolve the issue, the easier and less expensive it is. I mean, that's, you know, business school 101. And so I think if you, you know, any support leader needs to take advantage of all that data they're collecting, and generate those insights. Tell the people that are designing the feature sets as to how customers are actually using it or how customers would prefer to use it and, and use our, a lot of our case data to help make that story. And so those are, that's why, you know, when it comes to one of my key pieces of data I look at every day, it's really more the mix of the categories of issues that are coming into our, our phones every day. You know, is it all about UI? Is it about billing, you know, a question on enablement? Um, is it an issue uh, where authorization isn't working? You know, what is, what's going on out there? Because I think that gives us a very good insight as to how our customers are evolving and how they use Octo over time. This is very interesting thing that you're mentioning here, uh, Rick. So, because everybody, you know, there's a reactive kind of support, but you can take a couple of steps back and look at the cases coming and say, well, look, 
80% of the cases, I don't know, are coming from this area. So why not we take a, a proactive way to fix the issues there? But do you think the technology exists that, that allows you to get to that summarization level quickly so that other functions in the organization appreciate the pain? There, unfortunately, I think it's more of an art than a science. Because, you know, unless you're on every one of those phone calls, you're often referring to the data that's been documented on, on a case that you haven't been present to. So a lot of it really has to do with a focus more on understanding how you've categorized things, as well as making sure you've trained your people on how to categorize things correctly. Um, it kind of leads into, you know, one of the areas I'm, I'm passionate about in support, which is about personalization. You know, people want the right information. They want it in their preferred channel. They want it from a, someone they already know and that someone that already knows my business goals and my objectives. So it's a combination of, of understanding the knowledge that is necessary with the application on quick resolution. You know, one of the things I would say to people all the time is that nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to talk to the customer support. <laughs> and, and, and you can either be disenchanted by that or, or motivated by that. I kind of view support as, uh, as like a Formula One pit crew. Our job is something goes wrong, they pull in, we change the tires, fill up the gas, clean the windshields, and push them out as quickly as possible because they'd rather spend their time making money rather than understanding why the car is not running right. And so I think in terms of personalization, you know, what is the big thing to do there? And, you know, we live in a, in a world now where people are signing up to stay in somebody's house that they've never met before, or they're going to ride in somebody's car and they've never met this driver before. And yet a lot of vetting is done by, by the companies that are in the, the hospitality space to ensure that you know who you're talking to, or you know what they've been rated, or you know, you know, you've seen past experiences and so one of the keys in a great support experience is to make sure that the person that's on the other side of the phone is the right person at the right time. And it's somebody that they have already established rapport and confidence with. And so that's where I think the, the taking the data that we use to provide insights is really going to be an opportunity and support to also adjust how we want to staff our support organization. What kind of skills do we need to hone in on? What kind of training is necessary as we start, you know, doing this, this matchmaking, for lack of a better word, to find the right technical support engineer for, for the right client. Um, and so I think that's going to be a, a fascinating growth. And you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are dabbling, dabbling in that with the application of AI and, and other sorts of expert systems. But a lot of it is really just a, a database of information where you run a few algorithms. And again, I know this is over, oversimplifying it, but you run a few algorithms. And then in the end, we find the best match. And, and people, you know, they want that pit crew that knows how to change the tires. They don't want the guy that's sitting at the tire stall being supposed to be the one that's putting the gas in the car. So you want to make sure you have the right person for the right job. And I think that's where the, the real value in terms of how do you take that, tech, that information you're sharing back with the business and sharing it back with yourself to improve the operations and the, the experience customers have with your support organization. Oh, it's interesting you're talking about that. I talked to about two public companies. These are very big public companies, like market cap is more than $50 billion. And the first company had this issue around case tagging. So their agents were supposed to select a case category amongst 150 choices. I'm, I'm not making up this number. That's the number I was told. It's 150. And the support leader told me that 
looks and leap, we have 150 choices, but I'm pretty sure origins are not going through the entire list. And our, our biggest problem is now, how do we make sure that the data is clean? I can run the reports, but I know that that report wouldn't make any sense. Garbage in, garbage out. So his problem was, can I automatically tag these cases? Uh, the second company I was speaking with, they had a problem with case routing, which is uh, that they got the case like from a, a big customer, but the case came to him or, or his team after spending about you know, 30 days in the whole organization. And uh, finally, when it came to the right person, you know, they said, we'll need another 15 days. The customer said, what is this kind of happening here? Because they're thinking company as one entity, whereas within company, there are multiple entities and they are all looking at, you know, the elephant trying to make sense of, is it, is it the leg, is it the tail, whatever. So I hear you on case routing, case tagging challenges, and these are more AI related as you're saying, but we haven't seen anything, or at least I haven't heard anything that sort of works to the extent that what people expect. Um, I don't know if you have seen that working anywhere. Well, I mean, we talk with, with vendors that have technologies that'll help do what we call text analytics. Let's review the, all the records on a case. Mm -hmm. And, and can, we, can we train the system to select the right category based upon the information that's been, been documented? But again, even then, you still have to rely on you know, the, the, the engineers to actually document things in their cases. So there's a big part of training that has to be done to allow these text analytic systems to go in there and kind of manually, or shall I say automatically, maybe reclassify what was done initially. One way I think of it is, you know, how the government will report on their government metric at the end of the quarter, and then 60 days later, they have a revised version. And that revised version is usually after they've done a little bit of cleanup. And so I see a lot of companies will probably do a little bit of both or should do a little bit of both to be successful, understand through the eyes of the engineer what they heard, and then let's look at the way it was documented and make sure it actually matches with, with the categories that we have in our system. It becomes an opportunity to both train your people where there's gaps, as well as to make the data clean, to your point, so that it becomes more actionable. Fair. And on that note, Rick, could you share some of the best practices or innovations that you followed in your team, whether it's Symantec or Doctor, that you think could be interesting for our audience? Wow, uh, it's kind of funny. You'd say best practices, I kind of view it as just what's necessary to get the job done. Like some hacks or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I mean, for, for me, the issue is a lot of people get kind of hung up on the technology. And again, I'm a tech guy, so I have a great appreciation for that sort of thing. But, you know, it kind of, it's more about what does the customer need? And so what the customers tend to need is they want someone that's good at listening and someone that can actually listen for the kind of the message behind the message. You know, hey, these are things that are not working now. Let's make them work in the future. So it's about making sure we're speaking in positive tones. You know, let them know that we'll overcome this challenge. Give them confidence that this will get resolved. You know, you build a culture that when you're, if, if an engineer is lacking knowledge, they have the comfort to kind of bring in help. They need to understand nobody knows it all. And so having a culture that kind of espouses on that, let's help each other when necessary is a great deal. And, and nothing, if you're a customer and your support agent says, hey, I'm going to bring in an expert on this particular issue, you're feeling really confident that not only am I got the right person helping me, but the guy that listened to me when I began really heard me. 
Oh, I see. And so, you know, and then ultimately it all matters about sharing. It is a bit of a tribe and we, you know, we can't rely on tribal knowledge and we've got to really find ways to share these learnings with other people because I guarantee you that new hires or partners you bring in are going to run into that issue again. And why reinvent the wheel when we already have a way to solve that, that we've been successful with. And so I think those are all the key parts and they're the softer parts of what I think makes a successful support organization. But how do you get this, this tribal knowledge out of the head of the people and have them document this? Well, so we, yeah, we, we, we have kind of have, it's funny, we'll talk around the table <laughs> and somebody will be saying, you know, how do you do this? And, and uh, <laughs> the lady next door will respond with an answer. And I'll get up and I'll say, document that. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's, it's, we just got to get into that habit of when you have something on your mind, write it down. When you have something on your mind, write it down. And if it doesn't have to be perfect, write it down. Your friends, your, your allies, your other people, your partners, your customers even might help you flesh it out. But if we kind of rely or kind of take an attitude that, oh, somebody else must have done that, then I'll guarantee you that nobody's done it. <laughs> and so for, for us, it's been about building a culture. We have kind of the dedicated knowledge creation program going on at Okta and we're incentivizing our engineers to write content where applicable. Sometimes it's internal only. So, you know, most of the times it's external, but it's about creating that content because yeah, never assume that it exists already. <laughs> I'd rather have three articles that we can later on, you know, vet down to one than, than have no articles because we all thought somebody else wrote about it. Fair, fair. And could, could you talk about this incentive program? I don't know if, if you can share some details around how. Uh, and yeah, we just recognize people that, you know, you know, from as simple as, hey, you wrote your first article. Way to go. You see, that wasn't so hard. You know, let's uh, encourage people to write. To people that are actually involved in publishing and, and will sit down and coach others so that they also feel comfortable. A lot of people that are in support engineering, they like to play with technology. You know, maybe writing isn't their number one skill and so it could be intimidating. Well, you get a few people that kind of cross that line, then they realize that, hey, I can do that too. And so it's ultimately a great knowledge, you know, creation system will kind of allow you to hit that goal of reducing your time to resolution. Your people will have better access to the data that's already been vetted to be the right solution and hand it off to the customer and get them on their way as quickly as possible. Great. And actually, that's a good uh, segue to my next question, which is around uh, what are the metrics that you, I'm sure you must be doing a lot of metrics in your team, but what are the, the big ones for you? That's a great question. Um, anyone that's in this business knows there's tons of metrics. And there's what I call operational metrics and I call business metrics. And the operational ones are kind of make sure that, you know, the wheels aren't falling off the bus. But the ones that ultimately, I think, allow you to be a competitive differentiator are how long does it take you to resolve the customer's issue? Like I said earlier, they didn't want to call you in the first place. So the last thing they want is your issue to go on forever. Kind of related to that is the backlog. You know, you have to make sure you have a backlog that you can handle in a reasonable amount of time. If your backlog gets too large, your time to resolution starts slipping um, and makes customers less than satisfied. And then the last part, is, you know, that I mentioned earlier is this idea of a category mix. I need to understand what are the kinds of issues that are coming in. Is it a particular product? Is it a particular area of the product? Is it an area where I need to improve on? So if it's an area of the product that's coming in and, and you know, the CSAT surveys are coming back with less than desirable scores, then that tells me I've got a training opportunity there. At the same time, that category mix is useful for me to feed right back into the business 
and just say, you know, hey, we released a new version and we got a spike in these issues that came up in the last three days. So maybe we have an issue we need to look at a little bit deeper. The time to resolution is ultimately about the customer satisfaction. I think backlog is, is kind of related to that. And then ultimately the category mix tells you both about how your customers are, are using the product, how well prepared are you for handling customers that are using the product, and, and how what can the company learn from how the customers are using the product to make it a better product in the future. Fair. For the category mix, you're, you're currently relying on tagging, manual tagging on the cases, or is there anything else that you're using there? We, we're, right now we're doing manual tagging, and then we're, we're beginning the investigation of using some technologies to kind of help vet that, make sure that those are accurate categorizations, both for a you know, actionable data perspective as well as for a training enhancement perspective. Got it. And for the upcoming year, is there any specific focus on, like, these are my priorities and challenges? Could you talk about those? I, th- I think our biggest challenge is, is just the growth management. Okta is, is blessed and cursed with huge increases in customers that have, have become confident in us and are looking forward to our identity and management solutions. Um, we're quickly expanding our segments and dealing with customers larger than we've dealt with before. And so their expectations are a little different than some of our mid-market and, cons- and commercial people. Um, but we don't want to take away from those mid-market commercial people too. They're the bread and butter that got us to where we're at. And so it's about how do we grow in, in this, this hyper growth environment we're at at Okta and, and still be able to meet, you know, very different expectations from various customer sizes. And I think in, and along those lines, the biggest challenge is the training. You know, how do we make sure we've made the time to ensure that our engineers are current with the latest offerings, that they're current with the latest solutions. They're aware of what the competition is doing and how they're trying to leverage that to gain an advantage over us. So I think, you know, building that business acumen into your support organization, I think will also allow you to help kind of differentiate yourself from what your competition does. There's a lot of other things underneath those, but ultimately our biggest challenge is again, that's how to manage our hyper growth at Okta and then making sure that uh, we don't go short on training because I think things are going to constantly change and we need to make sure that our team is fresh as those things happen. And how do you manage in this hyper growth environment about, you know, you, you will have some new agents joining in with, who are completely green, but your existing agents, you know, they have to be up to date on new features being released, which in a SaaS world is, is on a very high velocity. So are yeah. there some things unique that you do to manage the training aspect of your agents? Or yeah, is it- and we have, yeah, we have multiple channels for training. So we have anyway from formal class training with our, um, you know, we have enablement groups that help do that, provide that training. We use learning management systems to do some of that training to keep up. We kind of, at Okta, we require certifications for all of our customer-facing personnel so that they know that they're the current on the latest Okta technologies. And those have to be refreshed every year. Um, in fact, uh, we have a lot of people even that aren't Okta employees that, that go through those training programs, which really allows them to solve a lot of their own problems because now they have a deeper insight as to what Okta can and can't do. And so it's about you know, applying all of those different avenues of self-paced learning management systems to classroom-based training to, to even you know, personal small group training. Where we, you know, if we have a new technology that we're integrating into our uh, solution stack, we, we start building a center of excellence and subject matter expertise, and then they start sharing that. So it's a little bit of telling stories to other people that are telling stories. So it's a combination of, of, of many, there's many different avenues and directions to do that. And they all have a purpose and they all have a value. So it's not like one, you only need to do training one way and then you can throw out the rest. 
everyone learns at different paces. They learn better through different means and we've got to be able to have the flexibility to find the best channel to give them the information they need to be successful. Got it. And Rick, you talked about earlier about the personalization and support, but is there a world where you, where you think about a next generation support, which is like the support that the companies are doing right now, the way they're doing support, but the way the support should be done or maybe like 10 years down the line. And we talk about personalization, but is there any other element to that next generation support in your mind? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge with personalization is it, it has to be, it almost has to be predictive. So a lot of the technologies, the AI that's coming along, trying to predict what's the next thing, you know, why is my customer going to call me next? You know, I, I remember sitting in the airport, diving in a, in a book on predictive analytics. And of course, I think people next to me were surprised I was still awake at the end of that. But um, <laughs> it was very fascinating because a lot of people think of predictive analytics as a, primarily a marketing tool, but it's a huge opportunity for you to kind of look for patterns and, and try to predict what, why people may be calling. And, and of course you have to build this positive feedback loop into it because you might be wrong. Your guests might be wrong at first. And so I think there's a huge opportunity to kind of, the more we can predict why customers might be calling and when they might be calling, the better prepared we are for that. And it kind of goes back to my analogy of the pit crew. If we know they need tires and, and, and gas, we are ready with tires and gas before the car even pulls up. And so that's what we need to do. And so I think there's a huge opportunity in the predictive analytics space, whether that, you know, some people are using SPSS, others are using R, and there's a lot of other technologies that are evolving in that space, which I think will be, which I think are really are going to be involved in kind of taking support away from being a reactive business to being a, a proactive and prescriptive business. And actually, that kind of makes sense because for the SaaS product, if you know what your customer instance is about, at least you can you have an understanding of a break fix. Like if something is broken, you can pre-warn them because you are running their instance. And uh, earlier talked about those kind of cases, which are more about informational cases. That's a different beast completely, though. Well, like in the B2C space, if you're on an annual renewal, I'll guarantee you, you're going to get a bulk of uh, your renewal calls, you know, there's a certain month of the year where you're going to see a spike. And so the odds are that if the first person that answers the phone is someone who's an expert on retention, you're probably going to be more likely to keep that customer than than if the person that answers the phone is maybe an expert on something else. So is there a notion like in every support team has, you know, people who are good at one thing versus another? Is that a case routing problem like for you? Does that exist or... Or do you think it's it's solved by existing technology? Or is this a problem even? Well, no, it, it is. I mean, it, it is a problem. You need to know what people are good at. Um, you want it, like I said earlier, you want the right person at the right time right. to be there so that you can get on the road and driving again as quickly as possible. And, you know, the challenge with that, of course, is you need to understand, well, what are the skills your team has? <laughs> and, you know, um, and you do it for two reasons. And then the one thing I add that maybe a lot of other people don't add is not only do I want to know what my team's good at, I want to know what they want to be good at because you're going to, anything you're passionate about, you're going to do better at. Um, and just because you haven't had exposure to it doesn't mean you're not going to be great at it. That's, that's interesting. Uh, that reminds me of probably a related quote from my master's professor in algorithms. He used to say, well, if you want to get a big uh, project done or thing done, uh, do not give it to your PhD student because they are here for long. Give it to a master student who wants to graduate quickly. 
So this power of this hunger, a motivational thing where you want to get things done, even though you're not good at it, it's been actually my number one hiring personally for me, Mantra, that you know, I, I value the skills, but somebody who shows passion and hunger, I personally feel there's no substitute for that. You can't teach that stuff. Exactly. It's, and it's not something you hire for and, and, and preferences change. So what excited you two years ago may not excite you anymore. Something else may have taken its place. Right. We're going to be tuned into that to be a success, to run a successful support operation. And Rick, so a couple more questions before we, before we go. I know you shared a lot of interesting things about how support needs to be done. We talked about personalization. We talked about how to sort of structure the support. But is there any advice that you can give to the support leaders or CEOs who are thinking that, look, I want to create a support organization that I want to be a differentiator and it's not just because? My advice is that, you know, support is, they're your canary in the coal mine. They're the ones that are the scouts, the advanced scouts telling you, are people really using your product or service as you thought they would? You know, I tell people at Octa and I tell people at Semantic that, you know, the average support engineer talks to more customers in a day than most anyone else does in a year. And, and it's about, you need to get channel this information right from the front lines, straight out of the, the proverbial horse's mouth um, and do something with that. And so, you know, I think in, in many ways, your support organization is an extension of your product team. They're, not, they're validating that the requirements were actually um, being met and, and being met in the way the customer preferred them to be met. And so I think, you know, using simply, if you go in there and your attitude is simply, well, you have to have support because everybody does. I think that's the, the wrong mentality. And I don't think, to be honest, I don't think most CEOs view it that way. Um, they kind of view it as, hey, you know, we try to be as good as we can, but we're human and humans make mistakes. And we just want to be ready when those mistakes are made to learn from them quickly and fix them and resolve them and hopefully not repeat them again. And so I think, you know, unless you have somebody that's out there listening, really, really listening to what customers are actually doing with your product or service, um, learning as well as listening about what do they want to do with your service and they can't do it yet. Um, I think that's a huge opportunity for information, field information. They'll help drive the success of, of your feature set and maybe your engineering model, um, as well as how you test and, and how you maybe even beta test or other ways of getting information out to customers to ensure that you really, you know, you really nailed it. You understood what they wanted, delivered in the way they expected it, or, or ideally even exceeded their expectations. And that I think the number one thing customers want to know is that you're listening to them, that you're, you're taking that feedback and you're making changes based on that. And if you don't have someone that's out there listening every day, you're, you're creating a blind spot. Interesting. And, and you mentioned a very interesting thing in, in your comment, which is I've never heard before, but actually makes sense. It's, you should think support as an extension of your product, right? And customers do talk about, well, they want to see this in your product versus saying this is something is broken. So do you feel that that, that channel of customer suggestions about new things that they want to see in a product from support to, to product to engineering, is, is that a well-oiled sort of transfer? Or yeah, we're, we're pretty good at that and, and relaying that information. And, you know, I think we're a challenge like any other company is we've got a lot of different priorities and we're all resource bound. But I know that many of the issues that and suggestions for enhancements or new approaches to things are often picked up and read by our product and engineering teams. 
that do make it out. And whenever, whenever we do get one of those suggestions out, we try to make it our best point to go reach out to the person that suggested it and say, hey, thank you. We now have the feature you asked for. And a lot of other people are going to benefit because they had the same need you had. Interesting. But it's then the responsibility or the action on the support team to, to pass that feedback up the chain. Because I don't think product managers and engineers have access to the ticketing systems. Um, they don't. And that, that is the challenge. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I think any group can be better at it. It's an area we want to continue to improve in. But it's about how do you provide um, actionable feedback from our customers so to both the product and engineering team so that they, they can do something about it. Whether that's a defect or whether that's an enhancement request. You know, we give them the use case. We give them the steps to reproduce, whatever it may be. And I think that's a, a key part of, of getting, you know, don't rely solely on your quality assurance organization to, to help you make your product better, rely on people that can, to, to can tell you how customers are actually using it every day. Interesting. Actually, that reminds me of an incident. That, it's a personal thing. Uh, mm -hmm. so when, I, when I was an engineer back in the day, uh, I was owning a piece of technology that that company built. And I felt, I didn't know anything about support or anything, but I felt that I need to know what my customers are saying. So I told the customer support that I need access to the cases related to my area. And they said, well, we ain't giving you any access to the tools that we are using. And as an engineer, as I was a motivated engineer, <laughs> I was an engineering manager at that time. So I fought for that access actually. And I did get that access even eventually, but then I had this huge list of things to, or tickets to look at. And I was like, how do I make a like, sense out of this whole information that is being just done to me? Can, can, can somebody tell me that these are like, just categorize these issues on basis of that. And I ran into a sort of a dead end at that time. And my sense was to involve my product manager, like my counterpart and uh, give a sort of uh, uh, analysis to my engineering team as well, so that we hear the voice of the customer. Um, but I just got stuck. Probably no, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. It's, it's a, like I said, it's a blessing and a curse. You get all that great feedback, but now you've got all that great feedback. And, and, the, and the challenge is, you know, there's different approaches. For me, as being a former engineer, uh, I just looked at things one case at a time. And I just start reading through cases and I'd start making a mental note of, am I starting to see patterns? Am I seeing similar issues here? Um, and then, you know, I think every engineer has their own preferences of what they'd like to change in other directions that go. And so maybe you can even use that, that case information to help kind of validate that and say, ah, oh, here's another person that thought exactly like I did. And um, then it gives you a little bit more uh, strength to kind of make a case as to why this is probably should be prioritized higher. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of, to simply say I've got too much feedback, I'm not going to look at any of it. It's not the, wrong, it's not the right approach. You know, look at it the best you can and then continue to work on ways to gather that data quicker or, or aggregate it faster. But, you know, don't just simply throw your hands up and say, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of think of that warehouse at the end of, uh, you, know, you know, the Indiana Jones movie where they're rolling the <laughs> thing in there. It's like, yeah, just put it in there with all of the other pieces um, and then it never gets looked at again. That that's a mistake, and so you've just slowly got to take the time when you have it, and just go through bits and pieces of feedback. I think it's a good exercise to stay current on what your customers are thinking. Yeah, absolutely. It's also called putting in the parking lot, and that nobody visits the parking lot again. Yes. Uh, and I was just looking for with these volume of cases so that I can present a, a uniform view to the team. I did go through the individual cases, but I was struggling to make a holistic sense of what this information was was dumped to me. But anyways. 
Cool. And Rick, uh, last question. Would you want to share any your favorite business book related to support or, or outside support uh, to the audience? So one of the books that I, that, that I, I still keep nearby is a book, and boy, the author I've just blanked on, but I know the name of the book is called Shackleton's Way. And it's about Ernest Shackleton, who was a British explorer. He was trying to get his team to the South Pole. And uh, his team never made it to the South Pole. And yet he's considered one of the most successful leaders in recent years because he took an approach on how to build a team, how to train a team, how to, what are the right people you need to put on the team, what are the right skill sets, and how do you keep a team motivated in both positive times and in, in, in not so positive times. And so I, I kind of like that book a lot. It's, it's, it was based on you know, his story. It got adopted into a business book in terms of some best practices. Um, I think I even had a training based on that book many, many years ago. But it's a book that kind of resonated with me because it talked about, you know, leadership in very difficult situations. And, you know, it all starts from building the right team to begin with. But then it's, it, it takes maintenance. You can't just build the team and push it off and say good luck. There, there's a constant level of focus. And it's about, you know, as a leader, you need to be able to, you know, don't ask your people to do anything you're not willing to try. That helps motivate them as well, because they're like, well, I can do it because he's done it before. You know, it's a kind of a can-do attitude. So I, I, that's one of the books that, that of all the business books I've read, you know, and, and, and when it comes to leadership, particularly, I, I kind of view that one as, as one of my favorites is uh, Shackleton's Way. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Actually, this is an interesting uh, book. One of the books on leadership that I had, I had in mind about building the team was uh, 11 Rings by Phil Jackson. So I, I guess I have two readings to do now, but this <laughs> is interesting. <laughs> hey, Rick, this was uh, such a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you once again for your time today, Rick. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Sandeep.